Welcome to Hell, California, the podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host and narrator, Mike Brennan. Hell, California is an anthology crime show. Each episode is an intriguing original tale of hard-boiled crime fiction. Noir stories all set in the same mysterious, mythical California border town. It was developed by a team of six writers who came together in March of 2020, working virtually during the pandemic. The following story contains depictions of graphic violence, profanity, and content of a highly sexual nature. This podcast is only intended for mature audiences. Phoenix, Part 2. Written by Raleigh Tomasi, Ryan Thomas Riddle, and Christian Elder. Miss Truman, I have critical information to share. I wish to meet. Please ring me. And then a phone number. Signed, Jonathan Ivey. Okay, so now what? Owen startles her. Leaning over her desk, she stuffs the note back in her purse. He pulls up a chair. Uh, now? I go home, pour a highball, stick my head in the fridge, and pass out. Nuh-uh. I'm talking about about tackling this Ivy fella. I mean, there's gotta be something fishy there, right? Guess what? You win, Owens. You can keep the debonair beat. I'm going back to my old beat. The petition to consolidate Hell County and El Cielo. That sleeper? That sleeper is called recording. And with that, she marches out the office. In the penthouse office in Chicago, three mobsters enter. Italian mafia hoodlums. They've been summoned by Carmine the Cleaver. He's 40s, Italian, a capo in the Chicago mob. I just got off with Billy Diamond in California. This Muliana bookkeeper. You heard of this? Any of you? Blown the bits in a debonair last night. Along a dirt road on a dark night, headlights appear. An old busted Ford veers to the edge of the road. Black men are huddled in the trailer bed. Bridger leaps out. In True's apartment, True enters. Clothes are strewn, jazz posters are up, vinyl records smeared on the coffee table. True kicks off her heels and pours a highball at the bar. Outside at the train tracks, an abandoned industrial train car is buried in the field, broken, rusty, a hulking shell smeared in overgrown weeds and tall grass. Bridger enters the train car and lights an oil lamp. He illuminates the interior. It's a cozy little home, a poor man's cottage, secondhand furniture and accoutrements. In Trude's apartment, True gets down to her bra and skirt. She gets a felonious monk album, sets it on the record floor. Back at the train car, Bridger whips off his shirt. He's down to a wife beater and boxers. He digs under the bed and fishes out a small wooden case. He opens it. A Colt 
M1911 is tucked inside. In True's apartment at the kitchen, the refrigerator opens. True's on the other end. She slumps down to the tiles, curled on her knees. She raises her highball, leans back on the door, and basks in the cool. In the blip of an eye, the next morning, she passed out on the floor. Moments later, at the front door, True fastens her robe and opens the door. It's Swan. In the kitchen, True brings two cups of coffee. Sorry, no milk. It went sour. He sips. There's a hint of something else in the coffee. You like? I was presumptuous and dripped in some Irish. That's the way I like it. Bless your soul. I'm going to be honest. It's not just that I need you on this story. You need to stay close to Frank. Why? You want me to lay low on the petition beat because you're afraid of O'Hara? I ain't afraid of nobody. Neither am I. I mean, what in the world can they possibly do to me? Do? Kid, I got news for you. They did it. Farmhouse. It's a country-style rustic home. Coffee beans are grinding. The hand with the missing digits drops the beans. The peculiar man, who's still unseen, travels into the next room. He answers the phone. Hello? I see. I was informed you ordered that shipment. Back at True's apartment, True and Swan, she's shaking now, rattled. You seen them? These pics? Uh, plenty other rags. I don't pay top dollar for that kind of trash. Hey, I didn't mean it like that. You should show Faye how to make this coffee. Minus the Irish. At the front door a little later, Swan steps out. Got to clean up the place every now and then. No offense. True bats her eyes and shuts the door in his face. True lifts up her phone and dials. It answers. Velma, it's true. No, no, hon, not that. Listen, I need you to pass on a message Ronnie can't know nothing about. At the outer office at Phoenix Motors in Chicago, Ralph rages out of the adjoining door, rattling a newspaper. Mr. Marston? Charges into his brother's office. What the fuck is this? Inside Eamon's office. You talk to the standard behind my back? You goddamn flying nitwit? Eamon, the members on the board are furious. They're calling for our heads. How could you? Eamon rises. He drifts to the window, sparks a cigarette, and gazes at the Chicago city skyline. Oh, my God. And then there's our father's friends. They're not going to like this. You've done it this time. You've really, really done it. You don't have anything to say for yourself? You'll figure it out. You always do, right? At the Lasseter building in the restroom, Wexler is at one of the stalls. O'Hara is inside taking a ship. We've fleshed out plenty of joints south of the tracks and along the beach. We're hitting harder than ever. 
I mean, shaking down the cat houses, the underground parlors, the gambling dens. Oh, hell! Mayor? Buddy. <sighs> hey, be a kind fella. Reach into the one over. The toilet wipes! Get me the damn toilet wipes! The damn rolling hairs depleted! Oh, of course. All right, of course, sir. I'm on it. I'm on it. Moments later, at the sink, O'Hara is washing his hands. None of this means a damn without the Red Horn. The Red Horn has safeguards. Tootie's friends in Chicago. Mm, sticks in my craw. The Chicago boys and the Jews. If not for them, these exotic gardens of inequity and hanky-panky would have long since to thrive. I have an idea. This unfortunate business with the Phoenix plant may be a boon to us. I'll get on the horn. See if I can leverage that on my end. Tutti will fold, buddy. You mark my words. Back at McGill's cafe at a table, Owens is mangling a pastrami on rye. True has joined him. Elsie zips over with the coffee. Or coffee? He nods, she pours. Ma'am, would you like anything? Nah, no thanks. Really? Come on, it's on me. No soda pop or nothing? I'll cool you down. True shakes her head. Okay, tomato. Bring me the check. Elsie leaves. I was happy to get your call. Bridger bumps out from the kitchen. He circulates the room and busses the tables. Despite what you think, I've always respected you, True. I think burying the hatch and working like this together, it's gonna reap mutually beneficial rewards. Elsie returns and lays down the check. There. Thanks, Dollface. Hop, hop. Mop on Wilsey's time, not Licandro's. True turns, Licandro stalks Bridger as he collects dishes. I give you a job. I feed you. I pay you. And to what? To slouch. Licandro snatches the plastic tub feigns a slouching Bridger, stomps about in mocking display. Look at me. I'm so sad, so sad. Licandro, don't do right by me. Nobody wants to see sad Negro. Bridger puts on a fake smile and picks up the tub again. True is disturbed, embarrassed for Bridger. Outside, True and Owens exit McGill's. True still appears ruffled by the scene inside. They walk to Owen's car. Back in the kitchen, Bridger braces the sink, water running, nostrils flaring, face bald like a fist. Anger seeds under the surface. At the Phoenix car plant, production has halted. It's now a cavernous shell with automobile parts and a dense echo. True and Owens cross the floor and greet Welby. Mr. Welby, thank you for seeing us. Yeah, it's quite all right. I came in to gather documents for the legal inquiry. Uh, such a terrible shame. I mean, this place was alive, bursting with assembly activity this time yesterday. In Welby's office. <clears throat> well, I felt especially horrible. I gave him that car. You gave him the debonair that combusted? Yes. Months ago, at the launch, um, it was a gift. It was uh, unclaimed from a car giveaway, a sweepstakes we held, you see? Welby points to the sweepstakes poster on the wall. Not too many folks elevate colored men to office positions. 
Sure. Your point is? No point. Just an observation. Look, John sat right there. He never missed a day. He's been in my house. He knew my wife, even my kids. He was my friend, and I'm I'm going to miss the heck out of him. John died in one of my cars, and, and you know, that just kills me. Now, I don't know what mistakes we made that caused the engines to catch fire, but I am sorry. Maybe the Don model is simply cursed. Outside the car plant, True and Owens are returning to their car. A quote full of denials. You think he's lying? Acting is more like it, a kind of reverse manipulation. They teach you that in law school. Yeah, and how should you know? My father is a law professor at Boston University. No kidding. You're full of surprises, True. Yeah, I'm a box of Cracker Jacks. In the south of town, at the Ivy House, Owen's car creeps towards the small, remote farmhouse. At the front door and the porch moments later, Llewellyn, through the screen... No, we're not the police. We write for the town paper in health. The Brimstone Star. Llewellyn frowns at him. Hi. Forgive us for showing up like this, unannounced. You were Jonathan's sister? No. His cousin, Llewellyn. His first cousin. Llewellyn. Gosh, that's a pretty name. I'm Audrey, but most folks call me True. Inside the Ivy House, an old man lumbers through. It's Rudy Ivy, 58, black, one glass eye, ornery with grief. He leads the reporters into his home. There is a slight hitch in his gait. In the living room, Nell is on a chaise lounge. She stares out the window, grief-stricken. In the dining room, Rudy is seated with Owens. True stands. Well, the truth be told, Jonathan never saw Mr. Wellby much. They worked in the same room. True, only when Mr. Wellby had to grace the show. Llewellyn mm. drifts in with a platter, a pitcher of sweet tea and trim glasses. Mm, thank you, my dear. Llewellyn pours the glasses and hands them out. Thank you kindly. Thanks. Please continue, Mr. Ivy. Mr. Welby had troubles. He said he was afflicted. And those were John's only words on it. John didn't have no ill will, but it did put a burden on him at the plant. He pretty much built that car on his own and kept that whole joint running. That fool Welby would have run that place into the ground if it was not for him. Back at Phoenix Motors in the lobby, there's a news conference going on, and it's a zoo. Ralph and Eamon and their lawyer are all at a long table taking questions. Mr. Eamon! I don't know which one you are, but who's the death knell of the money? How many more is going to blow up before you call them all? Joe Ma, we hey. Chicago Standard, in your earlier statement, you suggested destroy this play in some kind of corporate shenanigans. Booby trapping the debonair to put Phoenix out of business. Any words on that? Eamon leans towards the microphone, but the lawyer sweeps in. Gentlemen. Let me be clear. No accusations have been levied at my client's industrial rivals. 
I assure you, Eamon and his brother Ralph are troubled, deeply troubled by these highly irregular engine failures and believe they warrant rigorous investigation. Pleading for an unvarnished investigation that doesn't automatically attribute negligent engineering standards is not a dog whistle attack in the automotive wars. Lives have been lost. Families broken. Shame on you. Slander and libel. That's the gutter your publication fades in. Outside on the city street, Ralph exits the building. Two mobsters are waiting for him. Ralph sighs. Down the block, the mobsters escort Ralph to a parked car. Inside sits Carmine. Ralph scoots in beside him. Well, that's uh, quite a silver tongue prick you got back there. <laughs> Near the border of the Mission Plaza at sunset, the blonde edifice of this old abandoned mission sits at the head of an Old West-style plaza. Little Mexico over here. Owen's car arrives and parks on the edge of the plaza. Owens points to a bar past the dried-up fountain. The cracked wooden sign says, La Cantina de Oro. Gutierrez, a senior foreman. He's in there. He knows a lot. You ought to go in there first, and I'll come in later. Keep it in the background. What's with all the cloak and dagger? What are you afraid of? <laughs> No wise cracks. The bastard took a swing at me last time I tried to get a quote from him. Thank heavens he was too blind drunk to hit a wall. He was a prize fighter, golden gloves, so he packs a mighty wallop. Gutierrez, huh? Yeah, Santos Gutierrez, but he goes by Stucky. Back behind McGill's cafe, Bridger exits out the back. He's finally finished working. A parked car flashes its lights. He looks up, shields his eyes. Jonesy's car, moving. Jonesy drives, Bridger is on the passenger side. I know you can use the bread. You're cool too. Not one of them hot-headed niggas running around the other side of the tracks. You know, he asked for you specifically. Back at the cantina, smoke swirls Ombres, rummies, and hookers are inside. True enters. Inside the door, there's a large poster. It shows a smiling picture of O'Hara. It reads, Firma la petition. True scans the patrons and identifies a husky man at the far end of the bar. Back in Jonesy's car, he reveals some cash and hands it to Bridger. 20 now, 20 after. Cool. Jonesy hands Bridger a book of matches featuring the Red Horn logo. In the alley, Bridger exits the car. Jonesy turns over the engine and drives out of the alley. Bridger starts walking. In the inside of Falcone's home in the wine cellar in Chicago, we see Falcone, 80s, Italian, an organized crime boss, a gaunt, frail old man in a thin cardigan. Born in the old country, draws wine bottles and fawns over his collection. Ralph descends down the stairs, accompanied by Carmine and two others. Ralphie, so good to see you. Thank you for coming down. 
Look at you. Sta bene. How's everything? Eve is fine, thank you. And uh, how's my goddaughter, Christina? Back at the cantina, True drinks tequila. Stucky is two stools down. That bites. See that? Now, that's what I like to see. Worms still in the bottle. Tequila, real tequila. A joint I go to north of the tracks calls it tequila, but it's more like, I don't know, hot piss liquid in a bottle. Nothing with kick to it. The bartender stares at her blankly. Gringa, tonta. Something you like to share? Yeah. He don't understand you. Miguel don't speak English. I, I, oh dear, wow. Back in Falcone's wine cellar, Ralph is pleading his case. He didn't have any information about the plant in California. That was information I shielded from Amy. That said, I in no way mean that as an excuse for the things he said to the reporter. It's just that his imagination cut a little too close to the realities. Falcone placidly nods. Again, Senor Falcone, I am deeply, deeply regretful of his actions. I know after the plant manager's embezzlement and then this, I wish to make up for this in any way I can avail myself. Outside an apartment building on the street, Bridger walks. He halts near a three-story apartment building, produces a smoke, and reveals the Redhorn matchbook. He lights a cigarette. The flame reveals an address inside the matchbook cover. Bridger checks the building's address. He coolly disappears around the edge of the building. Back at the cantina. Uno mas. Really? That simple? Uh, uno mas, por favor. Uh, Miguel, este es mi. The bartender takes Stucky's money, then he returns to pour True's drink. She covers the glass with her hand. Hey, pal. Uh, no offense, but I don't want you to get any wrong impressions. Uh, I'm flattered, but uh, I'm spoken for. Simply enjoying the company. Is that all right? She lifts her hand from the glass, and the bartender pours. Gracias. So how about you bring yourself over two stools? True rises, moves down next to Stucky. She grabs a cigarette, and he lights it for her. I'm Stucky. In Owen's apartment, the window is cracked open. A book is wedged under the window. Bridger has gloves on, clicks on a flashlight, starts rummaging the drawers and shelves. In Jonesy's car in the outskirts of town, Jonesy's parked on the roadside, listening to some tunes. Through the rearview mirror, a car rolls up from behind. It halts, a police vehicle. Jonesy shuts off the radio. Two policemen exit the car. They swagger towards Jonesy's vehicle. Hey boy, what you doing in this part of town? 
I was going home. I guess I got a little sleepy and needed to pull over. I passed out too long. Hmm. From the heat, I bet. Yeah, probably. Well, you look wide awake now, though. Let me see your license. Back at Owen's apartment, Bridger arrives in the bedroom and sits on the mattress. He can't seem to find what he's looking for. Then he throws the covers off the bed and squats. He shoves aside the mattress and finds it underneath a large envelope. Back on the street, outside of town. It's a pretty nice car for a, a boy like you. How do you afford a car like this? I don't know, sir. I guess I'm a lucky man. Lucky man, huh? <laughs> you wising me, boy? You sassing me? Back at the cantina, a mariachi band is playing on stage. Hey, that poster near the door? O'Hara's petition? Yeah, don't they know that stuff is all propaganda? <laughs> oh, they know. Believe me, they know it's propaganda. The thing is, they also know if you post a piece of paper with O'Hara's face on your wall, Chief Wexler's wolves won't come kick down your door. Inside the Red Horn in the main room, the quartet is chopping it up on stage. The club is swinging. Tootie off the side of the stage, a lady giggles in his ear. Then, somebody shouts. Run! Hey, what's going on? Police scrambled into the crowd. Backstage, Ronnie comes out of her dressing room. Ronnie, come on, it's a raid. A frantic melee spills out of the red horn, thronging into police cars and police officers. They're roughing up the patrons. Wexler struts, clinging to his billy club. Back at Jonesy's car, outside of town. What you do, Mr. Eugene Oliver Jones? Policeman number two takes policeman number one aside, whispers something in his ear. Policeman number one returns to the window. You run security for 2D Watterson at the Red Horn? Really? Security? What exactly does that mean? Back at the cantina, True and Stucky are there, and the bartender refills their drinks. Ask me what you came here to ask me. You write for that little gringo rag in town, not so? What gave it away? What I said about the petition? <laughs> in part. But mainly, I recognize your friend there. Stucky flicks his eyes to a man. It's Owens, huddled in the corner, blending in, doing a horrible job of it. I owe him... He's not such a good fellow, no, skinny pinche fool. He's not my friend. And if it's any consolation, I've almost belted him on numerous occasions myself. Back at Jonesy's car, outside of town. Listen, friend, if I just so happened to ask you to step outside the vehicle, how likely would I find an unregistered firearm either inside this car or on your person. Minutes later, we see Bridger emerging from the shadows. He arrives to meet Jonesy at the intended meeting spot, but watches the police putting Jonesy in the back of a police car instead. Back at the cantina, 
True has her steno pad out. She's scrawling notes under the bar. Welby was a fool. Production collapsed for about two weeks. The necessary parts weren't coming in. We fell behind. Then John knuckled down. He got us running again. He saved the model. He didn't get any credit for it, but everybody knew. Everyone, including the Marsdens. We see Bridger making a call at a phone booth. Inside the Red Horn in Tootie's office, the phone rings. Mayhem is heard behind the closed door. Suddenly, police burst inside and turn over the room. Bridger hangs up the phone. He exits the phone booth and slips into the night. Back at the cantina with True and Stucky. And you have no ideas, no theories why the exhaust systems ignited? <laughs> theories? Yeah, I do. Plenty. But they're not about the engine. Because there's not one damn thing wrong about that engine. That engine is clean. And I ought to know, because I built it. Then what? Okay. Write this name down. We see Owen's car moving down the road. Owen's is driving True back to town. She's scanning her notes. Billy Diamond? Who the hell is Billy Diamond? Sounds like some kind of entertainer. He said he overheard Welby say the name to Ivy in a threatening tone that night. He thinks something funny happened with Ivy? She nods. What about Akron in LA? I don't know, but pull over. She snaps open her purse and hands him Ivy's note. He reads it. When did you get this? Just before Ivy's car blew outside the horn. See this phone number? I tried this phone number. Yeah? You called it? Yes, a few times. It's fake. I've talked to operators on the switchboard. This isn't even a real area code. It's all bunk. What? Why didn't you show this to me before? <laughs> Seriously? You're going to make this all about you right now? I didn't trust you, of course. Christ, I still don't trust you. She stuffs the note back in her purse. Forget it. Forget I even mentioned it. Drive. We see Owen's car arrive outside True's apartment building. She hops out. Good night, True. Night. She ascends the steps of her building and he drives off. We see True enter her apartment. Turn on the light and then. <gasps> Bridger is in the sofa drinking a glass of whiskey. Next time on Hell California. Wexler raided the horn last night. Um, I know, Chief. Who told you? All right, Jones. Jones! Mm -hmm. Get the uh, hell up. Uh, Your bail's uh, been made. Come on! 
you ever heard of somebody named Billy Diamond? When the petition goes through and the vote goes our way, which it will, I am dedicated to the economic growth and urbanization of this land. He's not gonna protect you. He doesn't care about the horn. And what, baby, you do? Who the hell do you think you are, True? Somebody busted in my place. Yeah? When? Follow Hell California on at Hell California on Twitter and Hell, California, an anthology crime show on Facebook. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Hell, California, an anthology crime show for watch party live reading events of each episode recording. For further inquiries or requests to be added to our mailing list, email us at hellcaliforniaseries at gmail.com. Hell California is powered by Zoomcatchers. Zoomcatchers provides virtual events through video conferencing platforms. They relieve hosting and planning responsibilities from businesses and individuals to give them the power to focus on forming meaningful connections with their communities. Please consult their website at zoomcatchers.us. Thanks to our actors and performers. Hell California, the podcast, is produced by Christian Elder. It is co-produced by Jeremy Foley and Sarah O'Reilly and sound engineered by Raleigh Tomasi. This podcast was recorded under a SAG after collective bargaining agreement. Please come and join us again. This is your host and narrator, Mike Brennan, saying, I'll see you in hell.